Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Elizabeth Woodson, and I'm here with Tamarcus Raglan. And today, I am very excited to talk to Pastor Rich Velotas. Pastor Rich is a lead pastor at New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York, and the author of The Deeply Formed Life. Today, we are going to chat with him about his new book, Good and Beautiful and Kind. Pastor Rich, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, For our listeners who may not be familiar with your work and familiar with your church, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the why behind your new book? Kind of what was the moment in time you're like, I need to share this wisdom with the world? Yeah, Elizabeth Tamark, it's so good to be with you yeah. uh, and with your, your listeners. Uh, yeah, I pastor New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. I'm a native New Yorker um, of Puerto Rican descent. Uh, my I spent my first 34 years of life in Brooklyn, uh, New York, and then the last eight years in Queens. Uh, and for the last 15 years, I've been a pastor at New Life and the last nine as the lead pastor succeeding a guy by the name of Pete Scazzaro, who wrote a number of books on emotional health and, and spirituality. And so um, a, a beautiful church in Queens. And I think because of the context I find myself in, I really write out of my pastoral calling. I write out of the context that I'm in. And it just so happens that I think the issues that we're dealing with as a congregation uh, are universal in scope. And so for this this second book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, uh, I wrote it because, I mean, the last couple of years, we've seen fractures and fragmentation in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our nation, in our world, um, uh, you could argue like never before, or at least not in recent memory. And so I wanted to figure out how do I offer language, theological language, formational language to help us live with integration, to help us live with a sense of uh, wholeness, not just in our individual lives, but in our interpersonal relationships. And also as we think about institutional realities. Hmm. And so Good and Beautiful and Kind, that title actually emerged from a poem from the great Langston Hughes. Uh, Langston Hughes wrote a poem entitled Tired. And it's one of my favorite poems from Hughes. And he said, "Uh, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. And what Hughes does in that poem is he names the longings of the soul, the aches of our soul for goodness, for beauty, for kindness. But he just he recognizes that in order to really live into those realities, we have to look beneath the surface. And so for me, what I'm trying to do in this project is what are the realities beneath the surface that eat away against goodness and beauty and kindness? And how can we live into that? in the way of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and that was uh I'm glad you brought that up. That was one of the the first things we wanted to talk through just cuz that that frames kind of the uh the structure mm. of the book. Um and I guess but more specifically maybe expound on like you you start off and put our attention um right at the this idea of the worms, right? And you have us I- examine 
um, mm-hmm. kind of what's what's eating at us. And there's a there's a word for that, right? We we talk about that biblically is is sin. Um, mm. And why did you why did you find it so important um, for us to name it? I know you kind of you dialogue around um, ways that we can dodge it or it's been misused. But why why was it important that we we maintain that uh, in the Christian tradition as we're thinking about it? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure how popular it is to begin a book with sin uh, and right out the gate. You know what I'm saying? Just like, all right, we're going to go right for the jugular here. Uh, but what I was trying to do with, with sin in particular was uh, try to um, to see it from a maybe from a different angle. And what I mean by that is this, this is not saying that some of the language that we have around sin is not important. I think it is. And so sin as missing the mark, sin as moral transgression, sin as I, I think all these things find language in scripture and they need to be retained. But when you're talking theology, when you're talking about the world, sometimes we have to look at things from a, a different angle to maybe get the, the fullness of what we're trying to grasp. Right. And so when I think about sin uh, and this project, uh, the line of thinking that I went with went like this. If Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, if that's the greatest commandment, then sin or the greatest sin must be failure to live out that commandment. And so for me, the, the logic is if love is the greatest commandment, sin must be failure to love, or the greatest sin or the essence of sin must be failure to love failure to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and failure mm-hmm. to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think when sin is situated in that way, we're able to see it from a different perspective as opposed to religious rules that we're breaking. And moreover, uh, some folks could care less about the religious rules. And then some folks say, I've kept all the religious rules. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a really good Christian. I go to church on a regular basis. I volunteer and I give and I serve and all the rest, uh, sin is not really a big thing for me. But when I say, no, sin is actually failure to love, you can do all those things and keep all the rules yes. and not love well and still mm-hmm. be caught in sin. Uh, and so uh, St. Augustine had, you know, and, and his and his writings had mentioned that, you know, the essence of sin is to be turned in on ourselves, to be curved in. The, the word is like in curvitus and say, to be curved in on ourselves. And that's the essence of our society. Our society is caught in sin, whether we're talking about Christian nationalism, whether we're talking about uh, racism, whether we're talking about greed, whether we're talking about lust, sin at the essence of it is turning in on myself, that I'm centering myself, not love for God and love for neighbor. And I think in order to really get at what's happening in our society, we need a fresh reappraisal of what sin actually is. Yeah. I mean, this... To, to paint the picture that sin in its ultimate sense is us just concerned about ourselves, mm. over concern for and love for God and love for neighbor. You know, because I, growing up in the church, been in the church, uh, the three-hour church where you go morning <laughs> service, you come back for lunch and you have evening service. You know, this, this idea that what I have heard sin talked about, the category is in legalism. And so again, yeah. you mentioned that people pushing back against that, but to acknowledge this lack of love then helps us also see the ways in which we've been affected by that. 
um, to mm. live in a world where we have been wounded by the sin of other people, um, or even mm. sometimes our own sin. And so you present this this idea of addressing and normalizing trauma within yeah. uh, the church context. And why do you think, because the conversation about trauma research is not new to the world, but I feel like it's new to the church context yeah. uh, to normalize that from the pulpit. Why do you think that is? Because it's it's important for us to be able to acknowledge the ways in which we've been wounded by sin as we're engaging in these conflict-laden environments um, and how other people have. But why don't you think, why do you think that this is new for some of us in the way that we see our faith? Yeah, I think part of it is, I mean, if I can be frank, much of the church does not live with the kind of integration mm. that we desperately need. And so we have so segmented our faith from other disciplines yeah. uh, because we see those disciplines often as a threat to faith. Yeah. Uh, and so, for example, why is there so much stigma around therapy and mental health? It's often because we see that as uh, as something that uh, is an obstacle to faith or uh, a, a rival to faith, as opposed to uh, ways that we work out our faith. And so I think because trauma falls within that mental health, psychological therapy category, lots of Christians have dismissed it as psychobabble, as opposed to seeing the theological foundations of it. We serve a wounded savior. We serve a wounded Messiah. We, we serve someone who, who understands what it means to be traumatized and to live in a traumatized world. And uh, if Jesus understands this, uh, and as followers of Jesus, Paul says things like, I'm crucified with Christ. My life is to be identified with him in that way. Um, we have plenty of theological uh, material to help us think through trauma in this kind of a way. And so I think part of it is we have so segmented faith from any other discipline because we see it as a threat to our spirituality as mm -hmm. opposed to another way to live even deeply, more deeply into our spirituality. But if there's any, any group of people who should be able to navigate the terrain of trauma language, it should be Christians. Right. Uh, and we are called to be uh, wounded healers in this world. And I think in order to get toward that place where we move beyond being wounded wounders, it means we need sometimes to expand our vocabulary yeah. uh, and to learn from people even outside of what is customary for us uh, so that we can grow into ultimately who Jesus is calling us to be, which is people who are marked by deep abiding love for others. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How have you seen uh, your church uh, walk into that, like to be, whether it's leaders yeah. or members, or even your teaching team to normalize mm -hmm. those kind of conversations in your church community? Yeah. Well, I, from a, from a leadership perspective, I, I am regularly talking about, um, the, the traumas of our society and the traumas of my own life. You know, it was D.W. Winnicott in the 1950s, a psychiatrist in the UK, who mentioned that there are two layers of trauma, really. And here's my summary of it. It's something that happened that should not have happened or something that didn't happen that should have happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, no matter who we are, we all have some element of trauma that we're dealing with, whether it's big T or lowercase t. Something happened that should not have happened or something didn't happen that should have happened. And so at our church, whether we're talking about sermons, whether we're highlighting stories of people mm -hmm. who have experienced trauma and have found healing on the other side, uh, this is something that happens on a regular basis in our community. And one of the ways that we actually help people to 
uh, grow an awareness of this for the sake of transformation in Christ uh, is to lead them in what we, we what we call a genogram. And a genogram comes out of family systems theory is something that we draw from uh, at New Life in terms of our uh, spiritual formation pathway. And we have almost all of our members of our church, our leaders especially, um, identify from their families of origin, what, what's the patterns that you've received from one generation to the next? What's the trauma that has been handed down? whether consciously or unconsciously, and what are the scripts as a result of those things that you're living? And so uh, that's part of our general formation at New Life, where we're helping people to identify what's the trauma of your lives, what are the, what are the points of pain in your story that Jesus wants to heal, so that you can also be a healer in this world in the name of Jesus, out of your own sense of yeah. Uh, pain and such. And so this is language and an approach that we use on a regular basis uh, as we try to disciple people uh, in the way of Jesus. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, the, the spiritual formation piece and um, how that's been incorporated in the life um, of your church. And so it, right, it, I guess it's no wonder then as you move in the book to talking about like the new way of how do we um, how do we move after we kind of look at the what's in the middle and what's eating the rhyme? Uh, immediately, you call us to contemplative prayer and you talk about yeah. the the need maybe for a more, ro a more robust vision of prayer um, as well. Um, and could you maybe expound on because I don't know, I guess when I think about conversations I've had um, with people, especially if I think about the events of our just world over the past couple of years, and, you know, uh, mentions of prayer will come up and people are like it's, you know, the time of prayer is done. And like now it's time for action, like statements like that, as if um, prayer isn't this really active and powerful thing. Um, it's refreshing uh, to be pointed back to that. Could you talk a little bit about how you see that being a vital part of um, us moving forward? Yeah, you know, what I'm trying to do with so much of these chapters is to reframe age-old concepts mm -hmm. and theology in ways that hopefully would be helpful for uh, uh, this generation and emerging generations. Uh, with prayer, what I'm trying to do with prayer is um, help us to see prayer beyond transactionalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in some ways we, we've all been taught to pray in ways uh, and, and this is the agreement or the arrangement. I say particular words with a particular level of intensity. Uh, tears always help. And, and then God uh, does what God's supposed to do in response to my prayers. And um, when I say that, I need to quickly also add this caveat that, uh, or the dis this disclaimer that I am all for intercessory prayer. I'm all for petitionary prayer. I think we see that in the scriptures, the book of Psalm, I'm all across the board. My problem, however, is when prayer is reduced to transactionalism, we're missing out on something that is even more deeper than transactionalism, which is communion. And I think you see this in how Jesus teaches us how to pray. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, he doesn't begin with, uh, give us this day our daily bread, our father. He has us pray our father in heaven, which is really about communion, relationship, intimacy. And I think that the essence of prayer is loving communion with God, out of which we are trained and formed uh, and, and, and shaped by the Holy Spirit to be people who are trained to love well. And so what is, what is contemplative prayer? It, it's at its core, it's, it's presence 
to the presence of God. It's being with being. It's 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 intimacy with the Father. It's friendship with Jesus. It's it's relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the essence of prayer. And so, contemplative prayer is training the soul to be present with God so that we can learn what it means to be present with others. There's a guy named Andrew Newberg. He wrote a book called How God Changes Your Brain. And he was talking about neurology and, and like contemplative life. And it's a great book because he just he's mentioning how science is now catching up with theology. Uh, and that science is now uh, with empirical data helping us to see the ways that prayer actually changes us. Uh, which is really what the essence of prayer is to do. It's to change us into who God is calling us to be, as opposed to us getting God to change God's mind about what we want God to do. Uh, and so uh, at the essence of love and wholeness is prayer, but it's a prayer that moves beyond transactionalism. And that's really what I'm trying to get out of this book. How do we live our lives out of loving communion with God for the sake of others? You uh, talk a lot about the Desert Fathers uh, and kind of your ideas about spiritual formation. How did you get mm-hmm. to, you know, because when when people pull from church history and they pull from the yeah. people off their shelves, maybe it's the 70s, maybe it's the early 1900s, but you're pulling people from about two centuries after Jesus' resurrection. And for if you don't, the Desert yeah. Fathers, this monastic community in Northern Africa, uh, why have they been so formative in your understanding of spiritual disciplines? Hmm. Yeah, I'm going back to the 270s. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, the reason for me was, I'm, here's a, the quick story. Mm-hmm. I became a Christian uh, in 1999 with 14 other family members. My parents, a brother, sisters, cousins, dog, everyone came to Christ that night. And uh, it was a Latino Pentecostal church. Uh, but I had seen something in my grandfather who, who he seemed like he understood prayer and mm. silence and depth of life. And so I mm. just saw something in him. But a couple of years later, I would be introduced to um, a book by a guy named Henry Nowen. He wrote a book called Return of the Prodigal Son. And so I read this book on Luke 15, which is a beautiful a picture of the younger son, the elder brother, and the father, and how we are all three of those people. And so after reading it, I said, who is this guy? What else has he written? And then I saw he he, he wrote a book called The Way of the Heart. And so I read The Way of the Heart, which is about the Desert Fathers. It's a small book, maybe about 70, 80 pages. And then the domino effect continued. Who are these desert people? Uh, And so I went to the library and started reading up on the desert tradition. And just so happened that that couple of years later at that college I was attending, uh, we visited a monastery, a, a Franciscan monastery in, mm-hmm. in Bear Mountain, New York. Mm-hmm. And um, from that point on, something happened in my soul where I, I tasted silence and solitude for the first time and experienced a kind of intimacy with God that I had never had before. Uh, but it began with uh, my, I think my grandfather who showed something to me. And then uh, a series of books that I started reading that just put me on that direction. So, I mean, I've been in this now. Um, I'm 43 years old. Uh, I started reading this in 21. So I've been in this for about 22 years mm. by the grace of God swimming in uh, these kinds of waters. And I am so grateful. Yeah. You know, it's it's because as you are reframing um, in the book, things that we may have heard of but need to see in a new way, um, one thing I was struck by is just what you are suggesting or presenting isn't 
immediate. It's this mm. process of development that comes from stillness and being before the Lord. And that, I think, pushes against some of the norms of our culture of Absolutely. where the places we need to be. It's immediate. It's it's um, like development within us isn't always makes a great Instagram post or, mm-hmm. or beautiful picture, but it's it happens over the long haul. Um, yeah. and, and that as we examine these worms that are underneath the surface that are eating away at who we are and who our neighbors are and causing conflict and destruction, that some of the answers require us to get away and mm-hmm. to be with the Lord in ways that push against what we get rewarded for in culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is for certainly not um, uh, a a seven-step kind of process to doing something with immediacy. And I think that's the nature. Ultimately, what I'm trying to get at is what does it mean for the fruit of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to flow through our lives? And and fruit does not grow overnight. I, I think in, in church culture and church context, we, we often want the gifts of the Spirit to quickly do what the fruit of the Spirit is meant to do slowly. Yeah. And uh, we, we can't, I, I wish someone could pray for me that I'd be humble. I have the gift of humility, uh, but I, there's no gift of humility. That, that's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that, that, is, that comes over time. And then when you, and then when I think I got it, it's like I got to start all over. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so, but this is a lifetime of work. Uh, but I think this is this is the way of following Jesus. I'm 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 routinely surprised at how surprised people are when they hear how rigorous mm-hmm. and hear how challenging and how time consuming uh, it is to follow Jesus and have and have His life flowing through us. Yeah. Uh, Jesus said things like, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross, uh, and do so. And, and I, I, like I tell the people in my church, he wasn't talking about gold chains. He's talking about a difficulty. He's talking about a willingness to deny the flesh, a willingness yeah. to deny yourself. That takes time. Uh, but I think anything that Jesus calls us to that's worth, that's going to go out into the next, you know, into eternity should take this kind of time, should produce this kind of fruit in us, and should be uh, not come as easy as we would hope it would be. So, yes, this is a lifetime of work to follow Jesus. Uh, but thank God that the Spirit is with us. No, I, and I, what I love about that is there is a sense in which that actually like el- like elevates and like um, recognizes more holistically and like with more weight like the issue at hand like when i think about the stuff that we're right that that we where we want that immediate change the the traumas in people's lives or the things that are going on around the world is it's like to think that there is something that can immediately make it all go away in the moment mm-hmm. like it's to like undermine like the weight of the problem right and so in in a sense it's like when you can reframe it back around sin uh, mm-hmm. and and really show the weight of like yeah the problem is actually much deeper than we think yeah and it's like and then yet the way to fix it, the, it it's not this immediate quick it is this long um mm-hmm. uh, faithful abiding process along with jesus um trusting that in that obedience and that faithfulness that he's doing the work over time not just mm-hmm. in me but in my sisters and my brothers not just in my community but 
all the way up in Queens and around the world. And it's like as he's working slowly in each one of us, he is slowly starting to kill the worms that's eating the rhyme. And like yeah. that is such a um, that is that is um, walking around the walls of Jericho. Mm-hmm. And it's like when the walls fall, it's like it had to be Jesus because, mm-hmm. you know, there's no way we could have done that. Like it was just slow work that he's done over time. Yeah. And I just there's something really beautiful about that. And I'm just I'm grateful for that, that offering to the church to yeah. be able to be mm-hmm. reminded of the power mm-hmm. in Christ to do the work in us, um, mm-hmm. in his in his rules and in his way um, and not yeah. by the world. Um, yeah, it's just beautiful. Again, uh, our listeners are uh, people who are involved in church, uh, people who are leading in church. And so the idea of incorporating spiritual disciplines into the culture of the church might seem a little overwhelming uh, because mm. for some people, this is this is newer stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. How has your church done it? Um, I know that that's been a process over a long period of time, but what are some of the things that have been helpful for you guys to incorporate this into the into the to the culture of New Life Fellowship? Yeah, I, I think um, a, a few things. What we've tried to do over the years is offer really a, a, a large menu of v- approaches that we can take to intentionally nurture our lives with God. We talk a lot at New Life about cultivating a firsthand spirituality, that we don't want to have a secondhand spirituality, living mm-hmm. off of the spirituality of the worship team, the preacher, uh, the small group leader, we want to have a life with God for ourselves. Uh, and so in order to live into that reality, it, it requires us to be intentional about particular practices. And so what we've done over the years, and we've been, we've been doing this for many, many years now, so we're, we're, I don't expect other churches to be where we're at right now because we've been doing this for, for a few decades. Uh, but uh, we, we offer very simple practices. If I, if I, I mean, if I can list four practices that we use to get people started and there's a, a, a large number of practices that people can live into. And depending on your personality, you know, we, we often said often say at our church that we, we don't have a private relationship with Jesus, mm-hmm. but we do have a unique relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean by that is we, we are all different people. We, we all have different personalities, temperaments, um, passions. Uh, and so we have to figure out what works for me, yeah. but in a way that's not self-oriented. Ultimately, I want communion with Jesus and love for others, but I, but how I get there might yeah. differ from the next person. Mm-hmm. But four, I think about four practices in particular. The first practice I think about is, um, is silent prayer, what we've already alluded to. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing prayer as a means of communion with God. So what does it mean for me? Very simply, I usually uh, have my phone in my hand and I set the timer to about five minutes, 10 minutes. For people who've been doing this, who are very new to this, you know, they might set it for one minute Mm -hmm. or two minutes before they get overwhelmed. And I have a very simple phrase that when my mind gets distracted and I think about the email I forgot to send or the conflict or the imaginary conflict, if he said this to me, I'll say that to him. All the stuff that happens in my brain when I'm praying, Mm -hmm. I have a very simple phrase, Jesus, here I am. Mm -hmm. And when my mind gets distracted, I very gently whisper, Jesus, here I am. I want to be present to your presence, Jesus. Uh, And so silent prayer is, is one way that we do it. Another is just a slow reading of scripture. We live in a, in a scrolling, skimming society. We, we scroll through our phones, through our timelines. Uh, and sadly, we do the same with the Bible. Uh, and so we scroll through the scriptures. Uh, but what does it mean to 
to take bite-sized portions of scriptures and ruminate and meditate on that until, you know, like Jacob, Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. What if, what if we went to the mm. scriptures like that? I'm going to mm. stay with this one chunk of scripture. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46, 10. I'm going to stick with this passage of scripture, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes until the Lord blesses me. Hmm. That's just a slow, that we're not reading now for information. Yeah. We're reading for transformation. Yes. Um, so like the slow reading of scripture is uh, another approach. Another approach is Sabbath keeping, where, uh, you know, at New Life, we've been doing this for a number of years. We're a 24 hour period where we stop, we rest, we delight, we contemplate. Uh, and so, uh, and, and then practices of like solitude, where we find spaces to be alone for extended periods of time. The, 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 the times in which God has done most in my soul have been the times when I have intentionally set out to be with God for more than just 20 minutes. Mm. That, that I had long intervals of time where I was bored and it seemed uneventful. And I was wondering, are people thinking about me on social media? Mm -hmm. uh, it was in those times of just hours of being with God, monastery, retreat, mm. a day alone with God, where God did some stuff in my soul uh, that I would really find out later on. It's often you don't see it in the moment. So, I mean, mm. for us at New Life, we're consistently putting out various options. And really the invitation is very simple. What feels right for you in this moment? What do you think your soul needs in this moment? And begin to experiment with it. Uh, and as you experiment with it, invite others to have conversation about how this is actually going for you. And so that's that's basically the advice that I would give to people. Start very small and invite others to process with you. And just note, is there any fruit that's emerging from your life? And maybe there's something else that God might call you to do. So those are just a few very simple ways for folks who want to begin a journey where they're cultivating spiritual disciplines. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. In light of what you just shared with the with the practices and kind of that that introduction for those who want to get started, uh, a really I feel like a pressing um, opportunity to kind of walk in that kind of um, mm. obedience is coming with the midterm elections coming up. Um, and so maybe like just in light of that, what kind of wisdom uh, would you mm. give to somebody who maybe be overwhelmed? by that, be it in their church, um, in their families? Um, and how do you see kind of that intersection of a actually walking in these kinds of disciplines and practices um, can yeah. can help ground us in what's true? Um, and also in the spaces where we do have to enter in those um, kinds of conversations and engagement can do so more out of a place um, that's Christ-centered and out of love um, and brings about beauty and goodness rather than more division. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, the end of at the end of the day, the the goal of the disciplines are are not for me to get some more religious goodies from God. Mm -hmm. The goal of the discipline is not for me to just to feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. The goals of these disciplines are to help me to love God deeply with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. Uh, and so, if if I, I as I tell the people in my church, you know, if if we're giving our lives to prayer, but that prayer is not producing greater love, hmm. we're doing something wrong. Yes. Uh, because opening ourselves up to Jesus is to lead to us living and, and leading like Jesus. And so when you have something like midterm elections, something what, you know, I've said we live in a CPR world, 
uh, a world in which it's hard to breathe and world in which our, our hearts are ailing. And CPR stands for the convergence of COVID, political idolatry, and racial injustice. And mm-hmm. when you have the convergence of those three forces, it's very difficult to be present to others. Yeah. But a prophetic way of being in the world, in the way of Jesus, is to be present to others. And so uh, something like midterm elections, I think, uh, when I think about contemplative prayer, when I think about humility, when I think about something like self-differentiation, which comes out of family systems theory, uh, let me talk about differentiation. Differentiation is this, uh, the process of remaining close to God, remaining close to myself, and remaining close to someone else in times of high anxiety and resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting people off or being enmeshed into them. Now, mm. uh, when it comes to elections, I and I write about this in the book where I experienced this firsthand, where uh, in October of 2020, before that election, you guys remember that election there, um, I had a pastor in my church say to me, hey, Rich, we should have a Zoom meeting where we have two of our congregants talk about why one is voting for Trump and why the other is voting for Biden. And uh, we should do this in front of the whole congregation. And with great faith, I said, we're never going to do that. Uh, And so (laughs) praise God. (laughs) I said, in his mighty name, we're not going to do it. And so, um, and so she said, well, wait, wait a second. I thought we were supposed, she said, what if we got two elders to do it? I said, even worse, this is going to be even worse. And so after thinking about it some more, I said, you know what? I'll do it. Who's going to do it? So she got uh, a a Puerto Rican man in his 60s who was voting for Biden, a Korean American man in his 50s who was voting for Trump, and uh, a black uh, millennial man uh, who was the moderator because that's how we do it in Queens here. And so, and so we had the conversation, and what 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 I was struck by was this. And we had been doing a lot of work in terms of what does it mean to be the presence of Jesus for one another, especially in hostile contexts. And what I found was this, the people in that conversation were curious, uh, humble. Uh, They gave themselves to listening, to presence. Uh, It wasn't that everything was just wonderful and not awkward. There were plenty of awkward moments in that conversation. There were plenty of things that as I was on Zoom watching as was one of the participants, I was cringing because I was like, oh, I didn't want that to be said out loud. And it was said out loud anyway. (laughs) Uh, But what I saw was, and I'm not trying to romanticize this, there there are fundamental differences socially and politically that matter and need to be taken seriously uh, and need to be... um, you know, not brushed under the carpet and and spoken. But what I did see was an ability to be present to one another. And this doesn't mean that uh, these two men in particular walked out of there agreeing 100%, but it did show and demonstrate that we can do something different than how the world is having these conversations than how it's happening on social media. And so for those who are anxious, I think number one, pay attention to your own anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are you anxious? What's the story you're telling yourself? Uh, wh- why do you need everyone to like you and agree with everything that you say? What does that mean for you? Uh, pay attention to your body. You know, at New Life, we say our bodies are major prophets, not minor prophets. Mm-hmm. Our bodies speak mm-hmm. very loudly and know ahead of time what's going on with our lives before our minds can catch up. So pay attention to your bodies. Uh, live with curiosity. Yeah. 
there are lots of people that are seeing the world from a particular perspective because there's a story behind it. Can you understand the story? Can you understand the fears, the values? Why do people vote in particular ways? Well, it's often because they've been formed in particular ways. They've been disciple to fear others. They've been shaped to have particular values. And then I think, uh, lastly, I would say, for those who, especially in the political season, I think we have to recognize as followers of Jesus, the level of cultural and political enmeshment that people live with and what it means to, to be gentle. There are, uh, here's a domino effect that I, I've, I try to explain it this way. To critique a president, to critique a political figure, often when someone hears a critique of especially the person I'm voting for, here's, the, here's what happens in the brain. You're critiquing my party that has particular values, uh, which means you're particular, uh, critiquing my values, which means you're critiquing uh, the way that I read the Bible, because the Bible is how I understand these particular values. And if you critique my reading of the Bible, you're critiquing of my understanding of God. And if you're critiquing my understanding of God, you're critiquing me at my deepest center. That's what happens when someone criticizes a political figure. And, and why do people take it so seriously? Why do people get so offended and defensive? Because to critique Joe Biden, to critique Donald Trump, to critique whomever is not just critiquing them, you're critiquing me at my deepest center. And so I think if we can be aware of the level of political and cultural enmeshment, another way of saying it theologically is idolatry. Mm. Uh, if you can understand the level of idolatry that people hold in their hearts, but to see it with gentleness, mm. to live subjected to idolatry is captivity, uh, is slavery, it's bondage. And whenever I see someone who is so identified themselves with a political mm. movement, uh, for me, I'm saying to myself, they are in a particular kind of bondage mm -hmm. because they are offering themselves to this politics, to this way of seeing the world uh, in ways that only God deserves. Yeah. Uh, and so I think understanding the ways that people are politically and culturally enmeshed, she actually leads to compassion mm -hmm. and gentleness and curiosity and humility as opposed to the vitriol and the anger and the meanness that we see in the world. And so let's just be mindful of how gentle we're living in this world. Yeah. Wow. You know, just seeing uh, what pops up on my timeline to Marcus, Pastor Rich, I'm sure pops up on y'all's timelines, uh, news reports, what is coming for the midterm elections in our churches, the conversations that have made some of my friends leave the church, like all this conflict yeah. and division uh, that seems really hopeless. Uh, there's all there's this glimmer of hope. Mm. And is that we return to the place that our faith calls us to, which is an examination of what's broken underneath the surface. And ultimately what's broken is sin and sin is idolatry because I've love for self more than I have love for God, which then produces mm. love for others. But the way for that to be formed in me is to submit myself to the power of the Holy Spirit. And our yeah. faith tradition has done that through disciplines. Um, mm -hmm. And it is a process. It is not immediate. It is attending to my own soul, being present with God and present with others. But the hope is when I'm doing that and in that space and before the Lord, I'm living out in true humanity and being uh, who God's called me to be. And that to me is where the hope is. Yeah.
because mm-hmm. I'm bringing the truth and beauty and goodness and kindness yes. that comes with our original design. Um, and yeah. as believers, we bring that. We said we know what it is to live well in this world. Uh, mm. And that that is the hope that we would bring. Because the conflict's not going to end. Like, it's not going to get any better. Uh, <laughs> but what we can hope is that we get better yeah. in yeah. handling it. And uh, thank you, Pastor Rich, because I think you've given us a lot of nuggets of wisdom and hope today. Yes, thank you. Well, well yeah. thank you so much. It was just a gift to, to be with you in this space. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode was produced by Chris Starrett, Chelsea Conway, and Mandy Page. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check the show notes for more information on how to best connect with us, as well as connect with our guests and ways to support their work. See y'all next time.